please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel 12. The great lie of sin. Sin, it is a word which simply means to miss the mark. To miss the mark of God's holiness and character. To fall short of the holy, the set-apart nature of our God. Last week, we sought to gain an understanding of sin, and as we did so, we considered four points. If you were here last week, you'll recall them. If you weren't, this is a good review. And those four points were these. Number one, outward sin always begins as inward sin. It always begins in the heart. Secondly, sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and delivers less than it promises. Thirdly, no one has ever gotten away with a sin, because even if you get away with it, even if your parents don't find out, the government doesn't find out, uh, your boss doesn't find out, God knows. God sees. And fourthly, God hates sin. And it's my hope and prayer that, that these principles uh, took root in our hearts. Many of us know them already. You know, I was speaking to someone recently who was describing his years as a child growing up in a church that didn't understand the gospel. He told me of his Sunday school teacher who would get big eyes and tell all of these little children that if they didn't behave, they were going to hell. And that they needed to be good so that they could go to heaven. And as I listened, I was grieved that a well-meaning woman would lead young children into such error making sin the great boogeyman which we need to discipline ourselves into overcoming is not the gospel. That isn't it. It's not how it works. And, and I pray that last week's message and this week's message don't reflect this concept either. I, I told you about sin last week. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching you about sin this week. Sin is... And, Sin is a terrible thing. It's a horrible thing. We ought to hate sin because God hates sin. But the message that I preached last week and the message I'm preaching this week are not intended to be a threat. They're intended to be a warning. Do you understand the difference? I don't stand up here and threaten you with the consequences of sin in order to manipulate you into doing moral and obedient things. I don't want you to leave here fearing sin, okay? I do not want you to leave here fearing sin. Christ has conquered sin. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can live in glorious daily victory over sin. Don't leave here fearing sin. Leave here fearing God. Leave here with an understanding of God's holiness, of our sinfulness, of our capacity through Christ to overcome, but of our obligation to submit to the Spirit of God in order to find that victory. The Christian life is not about self-determination and discipline to overcome our moral shortcomings. It's, about, it's not about fearing sin so much that you don't go near sin. Don't leave here fearing sin so much that you don't go near sin. The Christian life is about self-submission and humility. It's not about fearing sin so much you don't go near sin. It's about loving God so much you don't want to go near sin. Do you love God? 
I mean, do, do you really love God? Do you know what God has done for you? Have, have you? have you contemplated? Have you allowed that to sink into to, to the depths of your soul, what, what God has done for you? When we consider the evil that is in this world, when we consider men who would order the destruction of millions of his own people, women and men who would stand up and encourage people to kill their children, We, we see the evil that is in this world. We understand, however, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has redeemed us from the power of our own sinful hearts, of the very depths of our, our deepest sinfulness. Sinful hearts which would lead us to an end of destruction. We see a world around us that is wallowing in the mire of their own wicked choices. We see people in pain. We see people devoid of hope, of meaning, of love. And we know that God has in his mercy shined his love into our hearts. And so we love God. And in loving God, we obey God. Please never forget this. Young people, some of you may, God forbid, choose to indulge the pleasures of sin for a season in your life. You may choose that, that these concepts that you think you know better as Solomon, the wise king, did as well, you may choose to test folly, as Solomon did. Go out and prove that what the Bible says is true. And, and you will go out, and you will prove it, and you'll find it to be true. I, God forbid that any of you would do that, but that is a choice that you have before you, young people, to indulge the pleasure of sin for a season. But if you were to make that choice by God's grace, it is not because you felt as though, by God's grace, it will never be because you felt as though this pulpit lied to you or emotionally manipulated you into some moral living standard. Older folks in this room, some of you may be living or may choose at some point to indulge in the pleasures of flesh for a season. God forbid that you would, but you might. That's a choice that is set before you. But if you do so... By God's grace, it would not be because, or this pulpit would not be for you some source of guilt and condemnation, but rather an avenue through which the Holy Spirit can convict your heart and draw you in love back to the joys of an obedient Christian life. Now, all of that is foundational because I pre preached on sin last week, I'm preaching on sin this week, and it's important that we do so. But again, it's not so that you'll leave here feeling this fear of sin like sin is the great boogeyman that you need to discipline out of your life fear God love God and if you know what you have in Christ that love for sin will pale and just go away so last week we mentioned in that second point Sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and delivers less than it promises. I'd like us to highlight or to, to further this point this evening, considering a great lie that sin tells each of us, that sin tries to convince us of. And the great lie of sin is this. 
that the consequences of your sin, the consequences of your choices, your sinful choices, can be controlled by you. That you can control the consequences of your sin. <coughs> Excuse me. That your sin is manageable. That you can stop it at a certain point and not take it farther. That you can stop the consequences of your sin at a certain point and it won't go beyond that. And today we're going to consider exactly how much this is not and indeed never is the case. And we're going to do so in 2 Samuel 12. Last week we considered the sin of David with Bathsheba, the sin of David murdering Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. And our text begins today in verse 1, sometime after David's sin with Bathsheba. We read this in chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and he said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Uh, now, the way we read narrative, we might be led to believe that Nathan's conversation happened quite soon after David's sin with Bathsheba. But uh, relatively speaking, we could say that's the case, but, but the time frame is probably a bit farther off than maybe some of us are thinking. We know that there must have been enough time between when David committed the sin with Bathsheba uh, and Nathan confronts him for this child to be born. Because we read in 2 Samuel 11 that this child was born, which means we have at least nine months between when um, David commits this sin and when Nathan confronts him. And likely it was even a little bit further after that. Some people extend it as much as one or two years perhaps after that, that the... the there, his child would have at that point been a toddler by the time David is confronted. I'm not necessarily convinced of that. I think it was probably likely somewhere in the, about the one-year range after Bathsheba's sin, uh, David's sin with Bathsheba, excuse me, that this took place. Uh, some maybe six to seven months removed from Uriah's murder, something to that effect. And Nathan comes to David, we see here. The Lord sends Nathan unto David. This is the same Nathan that David spoke to when he wanted to build the Lord a house, when he wanted to build a temple unto his name. And Nathan comes to David, and in very Eastern fashion, he approaches the rebuke of this king in parable form. Now, parables are fictional stories. They're rooted in realistic circumstances, but they're fictional stories with a single point, a single lesson intended to be expressed. And, and as Nathan was confronting the king, here's what a parable would do. Why, why use a parable form? Well, this is why. Not only is this very characteristic of Near Eastern confrontation, but by using a parable, it would be a means by which David could understand the gravity of the situation at hand, understanding God's holiness and justice and rousing perhaps his anger over the circumstance without arousing David's defenses. If David, if Nathan came up and said, hey, King David, I want to give you a hypothetical about a man that had an affair with another man's wife and then killed that man for his wife, uh, David's defenses would have shot right up, right? <laughs> At least mine would have. But if Nathan comes with a parable, a certain man had many sheep and another man only had one, 
there's nothing in that that is going to arouse the, the defenses, those natural, sinful, fleshly defenses that we all erect in our lives when we feel like someone is attacking our choices. And Nathan begins by introducing two men in one city, a rich man, a poor man. He does not tell the king what the story is about. He does not even necessarily say it's fictional, except that it has parabolic language. He simply presents a scenario. A rich man, a poor man, one city, two men living in that city. We continue in verses 2 and 3. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, Nathan tells him. But the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him, and with his children. It did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. The scenario is one of great contrasts here, right? We have the rich man, and the rich man has many flocks, many herds. He has more than he could possibly need. He is a wealthy man. But the poor man, the text says, has nothing, nothing but one little ewe lamb. That would be a female lamb is what a ewe is. Nathan takes great care to describe the nature of this relationship between the man and this little lamb. He raised this lamb from birth and nourished it. A poor man. He had nothing, but he cared for this lamb. He provided for this lamb. It ate of his own food. It drank from his own cup. If you've ever seen one of those people that lets their dog drink out of their cup, but, but, but he let them do that. I mean, he, let this, he loved this lamb. That's the point here. It lay on his chest at night to sleep. Literally, this lamb was important to him, so much so that the text says it was as a daughter unto him. He loved this lamb. You know, animals are not people, but there is a true and genuine bond that can be formed between an animal and a person, isn't there? Perhaps some of you have seen that or experienced that. That's the idea here. There is a true bond, as you might see a boy and his dog. That kind of a bond. There's a true bond between this man and this ewe lamb. Now, this poor man doesn't have much. He has his family. He has his ewe lamb. And then we read the conclusion of the tale in verse 4. Nathan says, And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. The rich man doesn't want to lose one of the many sheep that he has. When a traveler comes and he feels compelled by Near Eastern custom to provide for this man, to have a place for this man to stay, it is an acquaintance of his. He is duty-bound to, to provide and care for this man. He says, but I don't want to lose one of my sheep. So he goes to this man that has only one new lamb, and he takes his lamb from him, and he kills his lamb, and he prepares that lamb for this stranger. Count is naturally and quite intentionally infuriated an injustice of a very great degree. That rich man, in an act which accounts to little more than deep selfishness and greed, would take the little that the poor man has rather than just the small bit of his own plenty. It's unjust. It's selfish. 
It's wrong. And as we consider the relationship between the poor man and that lamb, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. David is noticeably impacted by this parable. He, he doesn't know that it's a parable. He believes that it, it could be a legitimate, a legitimate scenario. And so David, verse 5 says, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, this man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. He's very angry. He recognizes the injustice. He's the king. His job is justice. He recognizes the injustice of the situation and he declares that this man must die for his deed but not before restoring fourfold. Four lambs to this man for the one that he lost. As a consequence, David says, of an act that lacked pity, that lacked any sort of compassion, that rich man has zero compassion within him, that he would take the one precious thing that this poor man has when he has so much plenty. David was throughout his life a very sensitive man, and we see that sensitivity give way to vengeance when confronted with injustice. And indeed, we find that here. He wants this man to die for his actions, which amount to justice, injustice, without, without debate. And this is what Nathan was going for. This is what Nathan desired. This is what he expected. This is where he wanted this to go. For now he could drive home the point directly. How do you rebuke a king? Right? Nathan says in verses 7 through 9. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if it had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. I would have given you more if that was not enough. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. You're the man, David, Nathan says to him. You're the rich man who had plenty, who had more than enough, who had everything he wanted and in a fit of selfishness and, and lack of pity, as you would say, David, you went and you took the one precious thing that a poor man had and you took it for yourself. Uriah had one wife whom he loved. He was on the battlefield fighting for God, king, and country. And you, David, took from him the one thing he had when you had a whole host of women with which you could satisfy your lusts. He then delivers a message from the Lord initiated with that common prophetic phrase, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. When a prophet used that phrase, thus saith the Lord, he was invoking a message, literally claiming to be speaking for God himself. This would invoke the clause in the law that says if what this man says does not come to pass, if what this man says is false, he is to be stoned. Nathan is saying that he's speaking for Jehovah God here, that Jehovah God has spoken to him and he's delivering a message for him. 
And God tells David, David, I saved you from Saul, who wanted to kill you. I have given you Saul's house. I have given you Saul's wives. I have given you the kingdom, not just of, Ju of Judah, but also of Israel. I've given you the entire kingdom. And if that wasn't enough for you, if victory over Saul, if, if command over his household, if uh, his wives becoming yours, if the kingdom itself was not enough for you, I would have given you more. Why then, when I have done so much for you, David, would you despise my commands and do evil in my sight? Why would you look into the face of the one who has given you so much, knowing what you're doing is wrong, and do it anyway? God then lists, lists David's transgressions. He killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites. He took Uriah's wife and he married her. He may have used others to do it, but he made it happen, and God holds him responsible. And the divine consequences of David's actions are dramatic. We'll talk more about them next week, but we are going to read about them today. Verses 10 through 14. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them to thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the son, this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing openly before all Israel. Excuse me. I, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath also, or also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Let's consider these consequences together. First, God says you will have constant war. The sword will never depart out of your house. There will be a constant warring. You will no longer have rest. Secondly, you will have a family member openly betray you and shame you before the country. He will take your wives. He will lie with your wives before the entire nation. He will openly shame you. He will openly flaunt his power over you from your own household. Implicitly, one of his sons. And thirdly, his child with Bathsheba would die. It's going to be, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to talk about the consequences and um, particularly this death of his child, what God is doing here, why it's just, those things. We'll get there. We're not going to talk about that today. But you remember the chart I put up last week? This chart that you also find in the, in the uh, outline that I gave you at the beginning of this book. Everything that God has described about David's prosperity, all of those triumphs, God tells us and David that all of that could have continued. All of those triumphs that continued until his adultery, God said, I was blessing you. 
And, and the blessings weren't over. They weren't going to stop. They weren't going to cease. There was, there was more for you. There was no reason under the covenant of God that any of those blessings should have stopped. And in fact, they should have continued to grow. But David became selfish. Pitiless. Then he became a murderer. And now the troubles begin, and, and those troubles will not end. The rest of David's life will feel the effects of these choices. Now, lest we get too discouraging, let me remind you of what we read in verse 13. And Nathan said unto David, the second half of verse 13, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Next, uh, ne next week, we're not going to have a, a, a sermon. We're going to have a praise uh, and prayer service for Keegan. But in the week following, I'm going to preach in, from Psalm 51 and that great confession of David after the sin with Bathsheba. We'll consider more of this concept. The week after that, we'll consider the death of David's child. David does say, I have sinned before the Lord. He is forgiven. He is forgiven. Don't, don't forget that. Don't lose that. Don't miss that. He has been forgiven. He is restored unto fellowship with the true and living God. David deserves to die for his murder, but God has shown mercy here. However, mercy does not imply that sin does not have consequences. Mercy does not imply that the consequences of our sin goes away. Forgiveness of God does not imply that the consequences of our sins don't happen. And with that, let's consider five points of application about the consequences of sin. Point number one, and we've said this so often, right? You've heard this out of my mouth so many times. God's people, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose its consequences. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose its consequences. David woke up from his afternoon of rest and he went up onto the roof in the early evening. His eyes lingered upon Bathsheba bathing in her courtyard. David pursued her, inquired after her, found out she was married, found out that she was related to his advisor, found out that there were plenty of reasons why he should not do this, and he did it anyway. He took her. He committed adultery with her. He enacted a string of events with the intention of covering up his sin. He sought to deceive Uriah into covering up his sin for him. That did not work, so he wrote a letter concerning Bathsheba's husband condemning him to death sent by his own hand to the captain of the host, Joab, and Joab listened to the king and allowed this man to die on the battlefield. All of these were choices which David made, each along a timeline, but each with alternatives, right? Now David stands and Nathan stands before him some year later, maybe a little bit more. Uriah the Hittite is dead. Uriah's wife is now just a part of his harem of wives and concubines. She's one of the many. Uriah's wife's child is now a prince in Israel. And, and as Nathan stood before David, David having made all of these choices, all he could do now, the choices were made, the sins were committed, he could say... I have sinned before the Lord. He can repent. He can ask for forgiveness. But the choices have been made. 
And now all he could do was sit and listen as God told him what would happen as a result. David was not helpless because the very one who was going to mete out the consequences loved him and had forgiven him. But David had nowhere to hide. And he, this was not a negotiation table. David was not going to sit down with God and negotiate the terms of, the, of his consequences. He wasn't going to say, okay, God, I did this, so I think a proper consequence would be that. And you're thinking this consequence, I think that's a little too much. For uh, You've got to understand the extenuating circumstances. Meet me halfway here, God. David's not doing that. He can't do that. that that's not on the table. There's no bargain here. There's no negotiation here. He did not have the freedom to dictate the terms of his own consequences. And men and women, so too it is in our lives. Every day we make choices. And as we make these choices, we do so in a society where the word of God is, is known. There's nothing in this book. Now, the society as a whole may not know much about the word of God, but you have access to this, right? You have access not only to this book, but you have access to teaching and helps and pastors and resources so that you can understand this book. Not to mention, the most important thing, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling. You can understand God's expectations. And as the Word of God gives us all things pertaining unto life and godliness, we ought to have a pretty good understanding of what God loves and what He hates and what He expects of us. He gives us the choice then to obey or to disobey. But we make that choice with this understanding. That when we live in a manner that is contrary to the word of God, we can make that choice. Every person in here has the choice to, uh, to listen to the word of God, to understand what God's word says, and then to do it or not do it. But when we make the choice to live contrary to the word of God, we place ourselves in the path of chastening. Furthermore, when we make choices that run contrary to the wisdom of God's word, as it pertains to how to live this life, we do so at the risk of consequences, which even if we can predict them, we can't control them. And when we consider consequences, we must go far beyond just the results of our sin. The results of a sin may be predictable and knowable. I gossip about someone, they find out I hurt them, I hurt our relationship, right? That's predictable. I talk about someone behind their back, I'm running the risk of alienating my relationship with them. I can predict that before I do it. But you know, the consequences can go much farther than just that, just the results, huh? They were already having a bad week, and my gossip pushed them over the edge. They become upset and they do things that they now regret. And while I'm not responsible for their choices, I had a hand in that. I could not have predicted what they would do when they heard what I've done to them. And while I wasn't expecting them to go over the edge, they did. And it's because I said some things about them that, that I shouldn't have. And their downfall might affect others. We can't choose those consequences. 
We don't want those things. We don't intend those things. We don't even know about those things, perhaps. We don't even know the reaching consequences of our decisions, but they exist nonetheless. And the principle which we often call the sowing and reaping principle cannot be undermined and it cannot be circumvented. What you sow is what you'll reap. And this should cause us to think before we act. Number two. First, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. Two, your sin will... Your sin will affect the lives of others, okay? When I worked at my local police station many years ago, when I was in high school working, working with them, uh, I was in a police explorers program, did many things with the police all the time. Uh, one of the many little slogans that we had floating around, there are lots of little slogans that float around uh, in, in any field of work, right? Um, but one of the little flo- flo- slogans that would float around is that there's no such thing as a victimless crime. We'd see posters, there's no such thing as a victimless crime. See, people have victimless crimes, right? They say, oh, drugs, that's just me. I'm just affecting me. It's a victimless crime. Why should I, why should I have a, 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 big, uh, a big to-do? I'm just, I'm just hurting myself. Well, I can tell you, I sit across from people in the jail every week that are doing that victimless crime of drugs. They're not just hurting them. Met a young lady this past week, started meth when she was 11 years old, now has a child. That child has hardly even known her mom. Her mom has been in jail most of her life. She's been staying under the care of her grandparents, who, by the way, are also alcoholics and drug addicts. Are you telling me that that crime is victimless? You can't tell me that. Sin affects the lives of others. When we think of the people affected by David's actions, the the obvious list is pretty long, right? But if we dig a little deeper, we find the list to be even worse. Let's let's get the obvious ones out of the way. David's sin affected first Uriah, right? He's dead. He can't come back from that. There's a resurrection. But Uriah's dead. That's final. Bathsheba, her husband is dead. And if the parable, if that, that account of Nathan is any... Insight? They loved each other. Now she goes from having an exclusive husband who loves her to being one of the many. One of just a bunch who David can pick from on any given day. David and Bathsheba's child who's going to die. And David himself who will lose the peace of his kingdom the family unity, the peace among his family. When the book of James warns us that lust brings forth sin and sin brings forth death, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 gives us a very literal rendition of that, doesn't it? Two are dead from just the surface level impact of David's sin. Bathsheba's husband is dead. And did you know, I mean, think about it. Not only is her husband dead, but in the, in the span of a year or two years, she's going to lose her husband and her child. Right? Her child will die too. The mother will lose her child. David's got a lot of kids. As far as we know, this is Bathsheba's first. And she's going to lose that child. So those are the obvious people affected by David's sin lust, adultery. He wants it. He's going to take it. He's the king. Uriah is dead. The child will die. 
Bathsheba has to deal with that herself. But let's take it a step further. We introduced you last week to the man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. When we first meet Ahithophel, we will find him to be an extremely bitter man. I'm making an assumption, and we'll get there eventually. It's many chapters away, but I'm making an assumption when I suggest that it may be this event of David taking Bathsheba, taking his granddaughter, killing his granddaughter's husband, and, and his granddaughter's, his, his great grandson dying. This event may very well be the beginning of Ahithophel's bitterness. And if that is in fact the case, it reminds us of just how far these pains can extend. Just how many people that we don't even know can be affected from generation to generation by our choices. But consider the second one as well. As Joab describes the battle wherein Uriah died, stay with me here, as Joab describes the battle wherein Uriah died, his report to the king was this in 2 Samuel eleven seventeen. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there, were, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. There fell some of the people. How many men had to die on the battlefield that day because of a poor tactical decision on Joab's part, commanded by David so that Uriah would die? How many other widows were created on that day in Israel to bring about the death of Uriah? How many more men had to die in order to create a realistic scenario whereby the people could look at that battle and say, wow, enough people died that Uriah, one of David's mighty men, actually fell in that battle as well? How many children lost their fathers on that day so that David could keep up this sinful pretense of his? David set out to kill one innocent man to cover up adultery. But how many more men died to make that death happen? David didn't think about that. He didn't expect that. God directly attributes him with one murder. That's Uriah. But many more men fell on the battlefield that day in a decision that Joab never would have made if Uriah didn't have to die. Number one, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose its consequences. Number two, your sin will affect the lives of others. Number three, some things you simply can't come back from. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that I don't want anyone to feel that emotional... I don't want, to feel, I don't want you to feel the tug of emotional manipulation in this message. It's not my intent to scare you, though, as, as a jail chaplain, I can tell you many horror stories. But as we consider David's life, we must understand that some of his choices simply cannot be undone. And sometimes the consequences of our choices cannot either. When David considered the parable of the rich man and the poor man, the stakes were a ewe lamb, right? A female lamb, a little lamb. That was the stakes. The lamb died. That's replaceable. One died, you give four back. Yeah, there's an emotional connection, but it's just an animal. But what of Bathsheba? 
She didn't lose a pet, did she? She lost a husband, and she will lose a son. What was the cost of Uriah's life? What of the child who, through no choice of his own, would be condemned to death for David's actions? There are many circumstances in life where our mistakes don't haunt us forever. Praise God for that. Praise God for redemption. Praise God for restoration. Praise God for forgiveness. Time heals wounds. Money can be earned. Money can be paid back. A lot of these decisions that we, we can work with them, right? They, bad things happen. But there are some decisions and their results which take on a life of their own, which cannot be undone and which leave lifelong wounds. David found himself in such a place as he rejected wisdom and he pursued the desires of his own flesh. You cannot choose your sin. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose its consequences. Your sin will affect the lives of others. Some things you simply can't come back from. Number four, God has given you so much. Hasn't he? As David was rebuked by God through the prophet Nathan, his words in verses 7 through 9 were, if I may paraphrase, I have given you so much, and if all that I have given you wasn't enough, I'd give you more. But instead, you took what I have not given to you. You took license with that which was not yours to have. We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? All the way back to that time when Satan said, Have God surely said that you may not eat of every tree in the garden? And Eve says, No, it's not like that, Satan. It's not like that speaking serpent. God has said, I can eat of anything but one. How, how bountiful was God's goodness to Adam and Eve? How bountiful was God's goodness to David? I've given you Saul. I've given you his house. I've given you his wives. I've given you the kingdom. And I would have given you more if that wasn't enough. And yet, there was something here that was outside of my provision. You can't have her. She's someone else's. She's not for you. And you took her. You took her anyway. She's not yours. You can't... How many other wives have I... Have, have I I've, I've given you Saul's wives. You've taken them. You have a whole host. This one you can't have, and you took her. I've given you rest. I've given you happiness. I've given you abundance. But you took, you had to have that which you can't have, and you took it, and you despised me in doing so, David. Now, the promises of Scripture are abundant and many. They're clear about the blessings that we have received in Christ, both physical and spiritual. Consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the beautiful words. And such were some of you. But ye are washed. Ye are sanctified. But ye are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Justification. We define justification as an act of grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on the account of Christ and his atonement. Justification takes place at the moment you accept the gift of salvation. It's a legal transaction whereby you are removed from the path of judgment and you are declared not guilty. 
for your offense against the holy God. And if that weren't enough, you've not only been justified, but you're sanctified. That word meaning to cleanse or to set apart. Your justification secures your pardon from sin. Your sanctification has set you apart from the world. And has enabled you to fulfill God's purpose in your body. Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 23, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says you've been redeemed from the power of sin. You've been set free from the shackles of sin. These things which bear no eternal fruit. Paul describes them in 1 Timothy 6, 9 as those things which drown men in perdition and destruction. And when we understand this, when we understand what we've been saved from, but, but we don't even need to stop there. When we understand that Jesus Christ says, ask and ye shall receive. For what father, when a son comes and asks him for a bread, would he give him a stone? If ye, being evil, know how to good, give good gifts unto your children, how much more so your heavenly Father will give good gifts to you? If God says, ask, and I want to give to you, I want to bless you, I want to abundantly fill you, I want to be your Father. When we understand the spiritual blessings that we have, when we understand the physical access that we have to God through Christ, when we understand that we've been purchased back from sin and death and hell, Titus 2.14. When we realize that we've been adopted into the family of God so that we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4.5. When we realize that God has promised to supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. God has given us all. And just as David, the question could be asked, why then do you feel compelled to take that which is not yours? I have given you so much, God says, and if it weren't enough, I'd give you more. Why then did you despise my name and take that which is not yours? What can the world offer us? What need can the world fill? What happiness can the world provide that God could not rather provide better in his way and according to his will? in a manner that is best for you and pleasing to him. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. The message of God to David and thus to us is that he has supplied everything sufficient for us. He's given us all, and if it weren't enough, he'd give us more. And then he asks us to be content in him. And if we will remain there, we will find a joy that the world cannot offer, a peace which the world cannot know, a contentment which transcends understanding so that we can live out the words that we have memorized this past month in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. 
my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why then? Let's ask this question practically. And this is effectively what God asked David. Why then would we threaten this blessed condition with sin? Why would we threaten the good gifts that the Lord desires to give us that come from above? James chapter 1. With sin. Why would we undermine God's blessings with the temporary pleasures of sin for a season? One final thought, and I saved the best for last. Remember in all of this, as we're understanding the lie that sin tells you, that you can control the consequences of your sin. It's a lie. Don't believe it. You can't. That you can control what happens when, when you sin. That you can control how far it goes. That you can control where it leads and who it affects. You can't. Fifth and final point. Remember that God's forgiveness is complete and his mercy does run deep. There are two concepts at play in this last point, forgiveness and mercy. When we talk about forgiveness, the Bible gives forgiveness in two contexts. Eternal forgiveness. This is received at the moment you accept the gospel by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. You're translated from darkness to light. You're made a new creation in Christ. At that moment, just as we described with our de definition of justification, the payment of Christ's sin, uh, blood is applied to your sin and the record is forever cleansed. When God looks at you, he thus sees the finished work of Jesus Christ. He counts you as righteous through the blood of his son. And in this sense, every sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven at the moment of belief. But we can also talk about forgiveness relationally. That when one sins against God, he falls out of fellowship with God. This divine standard demands repentance and confession, a concept which we'll consider in the next couple of weeks. But this falling out of fellowship in no way and under no circumstances threatens our eternal forgiveness for sin or our position with God in heaven. A child once born cannot become unborn. A creature once made new cannot be unmade. Jesus told his disciples in John 10, verses 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And we who are in Christ can rest in the reality that God has put away our sin as far as the east is from the west. That no man can pluck us from the hand of the Father once we are in that hand. You can know that you have eternal life. That's not the point here. That's not what, that's not what we're saying. That David's eternal destiny was not threatened by this sin. He was a man who had received the revealed word of God unto salvation, and we know that to be true. That was not at risk here. It's a fellowship issue. It's a blessing issue. It's a relationship issue. And so rest in this, brother and sister in Christ. No matter where along the line of actions and consequences you find yourself, 
Maybe you're at the point where you've done some things that can't be undone. And you have, to, you have to live with that. You have to carry that. Remember that God's forgiveness is complete. Remember that even if the consequences of those actions follow you, the guilt and the condemnation of those actions need not. That even if people have been hurt and damage has been done, that cannot be repaired, or maybe it can be, and you should if you can. That if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. And know this as well God's mercy runs deep. God is patient. He is long-suffering. He is merciful. Isaiah 61.3, God tells Israel, I'm going to give beauty for ashes. I'm going to restore you. After all of these years that Israel has defied God, you know there's coming a day when God will restore them. Read Ezekiel 16 sometime, where God describes the nation of Israel as a woman who he found lying in the cesspool of her own blood beaten and torn and ravaged and he picks her up and he cleans her and he dresses her and he makes her beautiful and then God describes as this woman who has now been made beautiful by his mercy says I am beautiful and goes off and prostitutes herself with all of the countries that are round about her speaking of all of the false gods that Israel pursued and as God describes this and he describes how horrible this situation is for this woman who is Israel and how they are ravaged and how they are torn and how they are taken advantage of and how they are destroyed and the consequences of their own actions and how they are brought to such difficult, terrible circumstances so much so that as we see it today they have been scattered across the earth and they are persecuted people. But if you read the last verses of Ezekiel 16, do you know what you'll hear? Do you know what you'll read? Yet I will remember my covenant that I made with you. And I will bring you back. I'll bring you back again. That's what God told them. That is the character of the God we serve. There's nobody who's down and out with God. There are things that cannot be come back, brought back from. There are Homes that are ruined each year by poor choices. There are marriages which are forever broken. There are mothers each year who have allowed their children to be killed. You can't come back from that. There are choices that we make. But God's mercy can yet overcome. Is this not why Christ came? Is that not why he told the religious leaders of the day in Matthew 9, 13... I am not come to call the righteous but sinners unto repentance. Yes, some choices have consequences, but spiritually speaking, God will and has promised to forgive and to restore so that no man need walk around carrying guilt. No woman need walk around carrying guilt. We read just a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul used those words, and such were some of you. 
You were broken. You were bound in the chains of sin, but ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. One final thought as we close. The message began with a plea that each of us would understand that we serve God in love. It continued with reminders of the unique nature of consequences, the lie of sin that we can get away with it, the reality that though we can choose our sin, we cannot choose our consequences. As a child of God, we are in the process of sanctification, of being conformed to the image of Christ. The wise men, the wise woman, the wise child, however, will not need to be broken before he obeys. The wise listener will listen to the warnings and heed the warnings without having to test them, prove them for themselves. The blessing of being a child in a Christian home is that you can look back upon your life and not have the regrets that some others will have. If you will listen to wisdom, if you will receive understanding, if you will take the warnings that are given to you in the Word of God and assimilate them before you have to make the mistakes, then you will be spared from having to live with those consequences. And so we close with this statement, one which I would like you to consider carefully. The humble man will yield when he learns his actions are sinful. The proud man will only yield when through his actions he has lost more than he is wanting to give. The proud man will not yield until he finally loses enough to say, I've lost too much, I'll finally give in. And that's what God will do then. He will break you. That's what it takes. But the humble man, the wise man, will not need to. The wise and the humble man will identify the scriptures and will humble himself, will, will obey, will yield when he, when he realizes something is right. Let's close in prayer.